and welcome to Intrigue Explained. My name is Dmitry Grosbinski from Explain Trade. And I'm John Fowler from International Intrigue. Welcome to all of you and welcome back, John, to another Diplomats Debate edition of our podcast, the show where we attempt to elucidate truth by basically just arguing with one another in front of an audience for things we may or may not personally believe. On this episode, we are doing something we haven't really done before, which is looking forward instead of sideways or backward. We want to take a look at an upcoming visit by Antony Blinken, the US Secretary of State to China, Mm -hmm. that has just been announced. There's no specific date set yet, but they have said that they will have this visit in coming weeks. And what we want to do is throw around whether that visit, the announcement, the fact that Blinken will go to China, is going to be read domestically, internationally, and in China as a sign of US weakness. And we'll provide a lot more context for that once we get to that portion of the debate. But it's a really, I think, critical discussion to have because this is not the last time this is going to come up. Yeah, I think that's right, Dimitri. It's, uh, it'll be an interesting one. And I think there's actually just kind of some interesting general themes about foreign policy where it's kind of, it, is it better to engage or is it better to kind of, you know, um, not talk when people are, you know, when you disagree? Like there's a lot of very broad themes that you can tease out of this one kind of, maybe not an event, but, you know, one one issue. Yeah, absolutely. And what is the relationship between the US and China, China and the West like right now? How do they view each other? Mm-hmm. How should the West be looking at China? How is China viewing actions by the West? There is a huge amount to talk about. As always, I suspect we're going to get to the end of our hour and be convinced that we have five more hours left in us. But hopefully it should be an elucidating discussion while we do it. Well, fingers crossed. There's always a first for everything. Absolutely. Quick hit stories we wanted to talk about. We're trying a little bit of an experiment this week as well, where we've picked two quick hit stories from Mm -hmm. the uh, International Intrigue newsletter, both of which concerning Saudi Arabia. So we're focusing on one country. And we're going to take a look at, first of all, the fact that they have teased joining the, the New Development Bank, sometimes called the BRICS development bank or the BRICS World Bank, whatever you want to call it. And then secondly, this breaking story that they have effectively succeeded in buying the PGA Tour through their PGA LIV merger. Now, I'm obviously the sports expert of the two of us. (laughs) So when we get to that story, I'll be looking forward to explaining to John exactly how golf works. Uh, I believe it's the one with the horsies. (laughs) (laughs) What have I gotten myself in for? Just a a chance to learn, John, at the feet of a true sports fan and just athlete. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, quite. I believe that was my reputation in our graduate year, just the the, the go-to for for all things sports at the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Sports ball, as you used to call it regularly. Absolutely. I still remember when my, when my boss, Jess, said, oh, you know, we're having trouble talking to the Indian delegation. Why don't you just go talk to them about cricket? To which my <laughs> response was, I don't think the Australian government wants me doing that. You, you faked it until you made it. 
That might have been one conversation about sports for me. Just tanked the relationship for a decade and a half. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. Do you want to start with the the bricks com- bricks conversation? Because I think this is a pretty interesting story, actually. Yeah, it's a it's a fascinating one. So the backstory for people who don't follow the thrilling world of international development and the Bretton Woods institutions is that some time ago, I believe it was 2015, a group of countries known collectively as the BRICS but with China certainly in the lead, decided to create an alternative to the World Bank that they would finance themselves. For those who don't know, the World Bank is a multilateral institution that is effectively a fund that pays for development projects around the world, but does so with a kind of targeted vision of its understanding of what you need to do to prosper. The World Bank is always run by an American, and it is kind of the sister institution to the International Monetary Fund, which also gives out loans, but where the IMF effectively lets countries that are having trouble borrowing money borrow from the IMF instead and use the IMF's much lower rates to borrow at affordable prices. The World Bank is much more about funding individual projects. So building a highway, updating an entire port, doing that kind of thing. And this new development bank, which was created by the BRICS, was seen as a way to create an institution that would be doing that but in a brick-led rather than a Western-led way. There was a sense that the way, because of the way voting shares work at the World Bank. Steer steer away from that stuff. (laughs) You'll put me to sleep. (laughs) Yeah, no, you don't want to know. But the point is there is a perception that the World Bank does development at the behest of developed countries in ways developed countries believe development should happen. And so they created this NDB, they sort of seed funded it, and it exists to this day and it continues to give out grants or at least allocate money for grants, but led by the BRICS instead. And this latest story is that Saudi Arabia has now on a couple of occasions, flirted with the idea of joining. Uh, My eyes glaze over in general when it comes to kind of multilateral banking institutions, which is no indication of their importance um, because this stuff is actually really important. Uh, I think for me, there are two angles on this. One is the kind of headlines that you'll see in places like the New York Times and the Washington Post and these kinds of publications being like, oh, it's a challenge to the dollar, it's de-dollarization, it's, you know, all that kind of jargon. I don't think that's the right angle to take on this stuff. I think that's not what's happening. I think what's happening is what I have been banging on about on this podcast, on Intrigue Out Loud's podcast, in our newsletter, is just this is the general manifestation of a multipolar world. Saudi Arabia sits in a a region in which America has been the dominant kind of force. No, No country in the Middle East could really do anything without the US's tacit approval. Obviously, that's me generalizing a little bit. And Saudi Arabia sees an opportunity now as the U.S. kind of shifts its focus away from the Middle East towards Asia and arguably towards Europe. Um, It sees a chance to be that new regional hegemon, um, to use a word I I find excessively jargonistic, but um, it, it wants to dominate the region. And part of that plan to dominate the region is to bring China into it a little bit more 
not to have China dom- replace America as the dominant force, but just to have Chinese influence keeping the American force, the Iranians, the Israelis, all of those different interests in the region just kind of simmering along, and so Saudi can kind of rise to be be the chief amongst them, and that's what I get from this story is that it's just one of those, it's, it's another one of those elements of a multipolar world, another country trying to sort of emerge um, and, and bring and sort of heighten its geopolitical clout. And this is one tool of doing that. Yeah, it's interesting because my instinctive reaction was saying, listen, this is Saudi Arabia buying clout. Yeah. Clout is for sale and they, and they have money and they want to buy it. If you look at the NDB, the NDB began mm-hmm. sort of very heavily dominated by Chinese investiture. Of the of the BRICS, the Chinese were the ones that had the most money to contribute to a project like this. Russia, obviously increasingly not in a position to do anything like that. India tends to focus more domestically. Brazil as well. And by throwing a ton of money at this NDB, Saudi Arabia will have a huge amount of say in how that bank operates. It will have an immediate kind of clout within that organization. And as you say, it'll bring them closer to China in some ways by stepping in precisely when China's ability to spend massive amounts of capital abroad on buying love is pretty diminished. It is. I think uh, actually Intrigue covered some of the financial numbers coming out of China uh, in the last couple of days. They're not good. They're not good. China's Mm -hmm. economic demise has been foretold roughly every three minutes since about (laughs) 1964, but the numbers aren't aren't great and they don't have a lot of money to throw at sort of projects like this anymore. I should just say that too. I think the story is that they're mulling joining, right? This is not yet a thing that's happened. So got to put that caveat on all of it as well. Absolutely true. And it's also worth saying that in diplomacy and stuff like this, when you have this much money to throw around, publicly mulling something is an mm-hmm. invitation to courtship it's a, it's the debutante ball of <laughs> geopolitics it's a horrific thought mbs at, uh, <laughs> at his quinceanera but but in all seriousness this is an invitation to turn to the BRICS, to turn to china and say hey yep. what's your best offer what can you do for us if we get in if we get in with you right when you need us because in terms of scale the this bank i was looking at some numbers the new development bank has pledged since 2015 less money than the world bank disburses in just one year and pledging money is a lot harder than is a lot easier than getting it out the door so it's not a, an institution with a huge amount of kind of throughput it's big but it's not big enough and saudi arabia could bring a huge amount of financial muscle to it by the way, if, you, if you're interested in this kind of question of are they trying to use this bank to buy love? Is this bank going to be a sort of extension of the Belt and Road approach of issuing loans in order to secure diplomatic friendships? Mm. John and I did a, a podcast on that a couple of episodes ago where we spoke about the sort of comparative wisdom of that kind of checkbook diplomacy. Yeah, good response to it too. People have, people have said that was interesting. So I think... On that note of like buying love, I think that's a good place to transition to the sports watching story. And all jokes aside, if you could just explain to me what the hell is happening with PGV and LIV and all of these other things. Right. Right. Um, it is a bit complex it, to a non-sports watcher anyway. So 
Very, very basically, the PGA Tour is the uh, premier golf tour in the world. It's where all the big golfers play. It's a, it's a series of tournaments around America, um, including, you know, some famous ones that you might have heard of, but let's not get into that. Um, but basically, it's the richest, or it was the richest, most important, most prestigious golf tour. A lot of money involved. Um, and, you know, if you want to be best of the best, you play the PGA Tour. So about, about a year ago, maybe a little longer ago, the Saudi Arabian, you know, the PIF, the, their investment fund, launched this new competing golf tour. So the best way to think of this might be a separate league, like the idea of like the NFL plays American football. Imagine if there was a new league playing the same sport, but doing it with different teams, uh, often in the same cities to compete with, you know, compete with it. So they launched this tour called the Live Tour. Um, they tried to shake up sports. Uh, the sport golf is a pretty old school sport, right? Like it's all, it's all kind of country clubs and green jackets and all that kind of stuff. So they've kind of put on modern graphics and, uh, you know, made it, they rejigged the format to be a bit quicker, to be a bit sharper, played at some different courses, that kind of stuff. But the most important thing they did <laughs> was pay a ton a ton of money. Like we're talking, right. I think Tiger Woods was offered to join and I think he turned down something close to a billion dollars just to join this tour. We're not talking, we're not talking like a 20% pay lift on what these guys earn. And, you know, if you win a, if you win a major tournament, you might take home four or 5 million in the PGA. We're not talking about 10 million. We're talking about, I think the winner, I, I don't have the figures in front of me, but the winners of each tournament get, tw I think it was $20 million plus they were getting signing bonuses in the hundreds of millions of dollars. But so it's orders of magnitude more, right? right. Um, and so that's, that's the kind of, that's the kind of place that they were doing. Uh, that, that's the kind of strategy that they were executing, but it's, you know, very, very reasonable question is uh, why, why, why golf? Why are they doing this? And I think we've talked about it in general and you, you kind of alluded to it, but it's this idea that they are, Saudi Arabia is trying to launder its reputation. This sort of starts with the Jamal Khashoggi murder in the consulate in uh, Turkey back in 2018, where for folks who, who, who don't know about that, that a, a dissident journalist who was based in the US was essentially invited into the, uh, the Saudi Arabian consulate in uh, Istanbul, I think it was, if I'm not mistaken. And he was chopped into little bits by diplomatic officials on the order, almost certainly on the order of, of Crown Prince Mohammed. So since then, the Saudis have been really, really keen. They understand that their country is in a, in a position where they can't close themselves off to the world like you know China might be trying to do or whatever. They have to engage. But the big problem was that they have a shocking international relationship, uh, uh, reputation, sorry, and that building relationships with investors and foreign countries was really difficult in the wake of that truly horrific event. This is one spoke in the wheel of trying to rebuild that reputation. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll get past it to you for that for thoughts. I've got some concluding thoughts on it, but it, you know, it's a, it's kind of a wild idea, right? To, that you can kind of rehabilitate a murderous reputation by paying some golfers a bit of cash. I was reading up on this because again, I wanted to uh, understand uh, more about golf bats. <laughs> but my understanding is that the PGA and LIV basically spent two years in a massive, massive fight over this LIV mm -hmm. tour. The PGA was pretty brazen in invoking the Saudi Arabian human rights record, including things like the, the murder of Khashoggi, basically as a... Explicitly said it. Yeah, explicitly said it as an argument for their players to stay, as an argument. Uh, I think there was some sort of legal proceeding in the PR war. They were basically full on, these people are monsters. How could you possibly contemplate this? 
And then this week they just announced that the two are merging. Right. So that that's the news that like I yeah that the news the reason we're talking about this is that the PGA Tour after as you say a year of being like these guys are traitors don't join it um, the money doesn't you know justify the moral degradation that you suffer from joining a, an organization led by a despotic regime and you know really deputizing big players to make that argument too which I think is key because as it Netflix is currently filming one of these uh, these specials as they do, you know, Drive to Survive was with the F1. They're doing this full swing one at the moment with golf. And they were, apparently they had cameras rolling when the news of this merger broke because the players weren't told about it. The PGA players weren't told about it. And they are shocked. They are like, oh, so you've just spent a year telling me that I'm not supposed to take $100 million for being a pretty average yeah. golfer. I mean, average in the context of being the best in the world, but, you know, being in the middle of the pack of professional golfers, I, I've turned down a huge payday because I did the right thing, or you told me I did the right thing. You know, a year later, we're merging. So those guys got paid and they get to play on the PGA Tour and they get their reputations restored. Like, it's 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 pretty remarkable, but it <laughs> not to be too curmudgeonly an old man here, I think this is... Um, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this. I think this is a real symptom or another signal of this idea that in 2023, everything is for sale. There is no really, there's no such thing really as a hard and fast line that you draw in the sand around human rights. You know, China authoritarian regimes have done a really, really good job of telling us to not believe our lying eyes about what's going on in Xinjiang, what's happening in the Turkey, uh, the Turkish um, consulate in Istanbul, what's happening in Russia. The, these folks have kind of muddied the waters enough around really what I think are pretty clear moral issues such that people are justified in taking this cash and they don't face a public backlash. You know, the intrigue slack this week was throwing around an article by um, a, a brilliant journalist called Evan Osnos in The New Yorker about how you can, if you are rich enough, you can buy a Beyonce to come and perform at your con- your concert or Flow Rider or whatever. And and the, interestingly, the article was like, you know, every single one of these artists basically, with like the exception of Taylor Swift, basically, are available to do this. 20 years ago, only a very few of these artists did it. There's there's a lot there's a there's a sense that like money now there's no there's no shame in just shilling for cash. And and that's why I say I'm being a bit of an old curmudgeonly man, but I feel like I feel like this PGA Live merger is just the, another really strong signal that like you can basically do what you want because at the end of the day if you got the cash to just pay off the right people, everyone'll forgive you. Rant over. All of capitalist theory comes down to comparative advantage. And one form of comparative advantage you can have is a willingness to look the other way on morality. And most of these folk are operating in fields that are fundamentally where they are somewhat fungible. If you can't get Taylor Swift, you can go and get Megan the Stallion. If you can't get Megan the Stallion, you can go and get mm-hmm. somebody. Somebody is going to perform at the birthday party of princeling number 36 well in this case in this case it was the bar mitzvah of a like a hedge fund guy in chicago and his 13 year old son and his friends and flow rider flies up there to play to a group of 20 13 year olds which again going back to that dignity thing is like everything's for sale your dignity your you know there's no sense of like oh no i i, I can't be bought yeah i think that there's two separate issues of like your dignity of like playing for little Moishele and his friends while they sort of <laughs> yell at you to do baby shark again. Um, it, like that, that is a thing though. I imagine, you know, you can soothe your ego 
by diving into your giant swimming pool full of money. I think the morality question here is a different one, but I think the way that a lot of these players, a lot of these institutions are looking at it is going, the Saudi Arabian fund that you alluded to has $600 billion with a B. Someone is going to take that oh, and, and 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 the temptation is to go, it may as well be us. Because some they are going to find somebody who is willing to swing a golf club for a small fraction of that money. But you know, I don't know that that would have been true 20 years ago. I really don't. And, and that's why I raise, it might seem like a non sequitur, but that's why I raise that kind of idea of paying these stars for money, is that I don't know that 20 years ago, a, a golf player could have, you know, walked around town with their hair, with their, you know, without feeling intense public shame for doing that. I, I, I don't know that they could. And I, I think that this is kind of, you know, a corollary of this is that China about five or six years ago tried to do it with football players. They spent silly money um, trying to get, you know, the biggest stars in the world to go out and play in China. And it worked a little bit, but not really. The Saudi Arabians have just take, brought Ronaldo out there. They are taking a couple of other players and again, paying them hundreds of millions of dollars a year to, to wash their reputation. I don't, I honestly don't think that that was possible 20 years ago. I don't think these guys could have said, sure, I'll take the payday and I expect to be able to walk into, you know, my local country club and not be like kicked out, essentially. Maybe. I want... And I think these authoritarian regimes have realized that. I wonder if there is a difference and we can move on to our main debate in a second, but I wonder if there is a difference because with Saudi Arabia specifically, the relationship at the government level is so... Not even murky. I mean... You would basically be saying to a golfer, I don't want you to sell your services as a professional athlete for tens of millions, while up the street, Washington, D.C. in Congress is sending defense packages of hundreds of millions to the Saudis, when the Saudis are a key oil ally. Mm -hmm. I don't know that necessarily with the mm -hmm. Saudis specifically, you can hold a, as you say, middle tier, but elite golfer to a standard that frankly none of our governments hold ourselves to you know when when the saudis hold a giant glitzy conference people come when they they get to host the g20 they get to they get to host big things so i wonder if specifically the kind of oil dependency regional politics that have led to saudi arabia the US, the us's weirdest ally thing is is murking the waters in a way that i think maybe if golfers went to go play in the north korean league maybe they wouldn't be able to to get away with walking into their country club so i i don't disagree with anything you said um, and obviously all of that is correct and it's the real politic of the situation right like you make great points it's impossible to ask them not to do it and you know i don't think you can prevent them from mm. doing it but i still just stand i i mean Maybe it's, again, me being an old, old man and like looking back with rose-tinted glasses. But I, I, think, I, I think that you would have felt 20 years... And, and it's not so much about Saudi Arabia as the country that in question here. It's about the kind of uh, centrality to people in the West of morality and dignity that made you a public figure. That that is gone. Um, and, and, you know, I, I'm hand-wringing a little bit, but I think it's a little bit of a signal of late stage capitalism and the weakness that it presents vis-a-vis -vis authoritarian governments in the sense that if if a democracy is supposed to kind of be a beacon on a hill for how to organize your society and yet all the money is coming from 
despotic regimes that do all the kinds of things that democracies say that they think are bad. And yet we don't, it's like perfectly fine socially for our sports, our stars, our whatever, our, our kind of role models to go and take a bag when the bag is big enough. I, I think it undermines the the system of, of what we're trying to do, which is say that there should be some adherence to rule of law and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I don't, I, having said that, if I was one of these guys, maybe I'd consider it. I'd like to think I wouldn't, but you know, it's a lot of cash and you got to feed your family and that's, that's the way it I is. I mean, none of these guys are struggling to feed their families. There's not a lot of like pro golfers on food stamps. This nah, is a question yeah. between 20 million a year nah. or like two, but I do think, listen, we can't, yeah. we can't have all of our society incessantly sending the signal that the most, the best thing you can be is young, attractive, very rich and famous, and then get upset with like young athletes who go and be famous for a huge amount of money without asking too many follow-up questions about geopolitics. But but it undermines it undermines the West's soft power, doesn't it? Of like when you know, we we are not there to kind of well, no, we, we don't do things like that. And then it's like, well, you kind of do. You, 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 want it, you want to have it both ways. I think it plays into the hypocritical argument. But again, I, I think I probably am drawing a little bit of a long bow because this live deal has really annoyed me. <laughs> um, I'm a golf fan. I watch golf. I hate the idea that Saudi's just throwing cash at money and uh, at sport and kind of ruining it because, you know, it, it, for sports fans like me, there's something more to sport than just lots of cash. Um and I kind of feel like it, there's a lot of magic going out of it with them. So maybe I'm just butthurt about that. Are you familiar with the Premier League at all? Yeah, I mean, that's part of it, right? Like, I, I would agree with you. And I'm a Chelsea fan, which, you know, the one of the original sinners in taking a, a Russian oligarch's money for 20 years. So, again, I don't pretend to have a clear moral high horse here, just that there's something wrong with this. And I'm obviously not doing a great job of enunciating it, but it doesn't feel Another right. way of John saying, we are certainly for sale. And if the Saudi Arabian government <laughs> for one yeah, percent of just, your six hundred billion, scratch this section. <laughs> having offered to sell our morality to the highest bidder, it is a good place to transition to our debate. As we said at the top, this one will be a forward-looking one. We are looking at an event that hasn't happened yet, but has been announced. And that event is the forthcoming visit by the U.S. Secretary of State, the U.S. Foreign Minister, for those in, uh, who aren't familiar with U.S. nomenclature, to China. This was a visit that had already been planned, but was cancelled after the U.S. detected a Chinese spy balloon in the single greatest geopolitical story ever. <laughs> But they cancelled the visit indefinitely. There was a sort of deterioration of relations, or at least a rhetorical back and forth. And now they have just put out there that they are going to have the visit again. Now for this debate, as always, we are both taking a side, and we're going to argue it as strongly as we can. It's not necessarily the side that we fully, fully agree with, but we are going to try to put its arguments as steelmanly as possible. And John, for this one, you are going to argue that this Blinken visit is a signal of weakness. <laughs> well, yeah, I probably won't put it quite that high, but yes. Can I, uh, let me just say two things before we start. One, the visit hasn't been confirmed. Um, it's been pseudo leaked by the Americans 
um, at an indeterminate time in the future in the next like couple of weeks is what they're saying. Um, you know, these these this stuff doesn't leak by accident. So there's certainly a lot of smoke and, and probably a bunch of fire as well. So, so there's time for us to talk them out of it. Anthony, if you're listening. <laughs> right, well, exactly. The strength of my argument. But yeah, so like this stuff doesn't leak by accident. So that, you know, we can assume that there are advanced plans for it to happen. And, you know, I think it's interesting that it has leaked, potentially it's the US trying to lock it in and force China's hand a little bit um, to make sure that if, if it doesn't mm-hmm. go ahead, it's China's fault, as it were. Um, and the Chinese won't, in my experience, having spent four years there, China probably won't confirm it until the week of. That's just how they roll. Um, so that's the first thing. And then the second thing is, I think it's important as we talk about this debate, you know, this debate is binary. It's a really great format that folks have really responded to. And they say that they enjoy listening to us. And, you know, I get called a China hawk sometimes a little bit about for my views on China, but I think it's really, really important to like not reduce the general US-China relationship into binaries. Um, there was a saying, you know, amongst the diplomatic corps in China that to understand China, you have to be able to hold two completely conflicting ideas in your head at the same time and not go crazy. Uh, and and that's, I think it's just important at the top of that to say that mm. this stuff isn't either or. It's kind of difficult and gray and nuanced, but for the purposes of a good, of a good debate, we'll, we'll take each side. So with that, I'll start with the first point of just saying that I think going now, there's this thing that Ch- the Chinese foreign service or the Chinese government is incredibly good at doing. And that's, reducing the relationship or its foreign relationships and the structure of how those are managed. So I'm talking about visits. I'm talking about coordination. I'm talking about the process of having a relationship. They take the process and they make you think that the process is the goal. The goal of good relationships is results, whether it's investment, whether it's improved living standards, whether it's cooperation in in tangible ways. That's the goal. Uh, you know, something we say internally at International Intrigue, like sending the email or doing the spreadsheet isn't the goal. It's the process to the end goal. The goal is, you know, sending a newsletter or, or, or closing a sale or getting a new subscriber. That's the goal. The process is the tools. And China is really, really good at making you think that the talks are the goal. So if you secure talks, you've won. And I, the first point I'm going to make about this visit is that I think China's done a really, really good job of rejecting uh, Lloyd, Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense for the U.S. They've rejected meetings with him. They've basically blanked U.S. officials up and down um, until recently. They've blanked them up and down the board. The, U- the U.S. ambassador in Beijing is getting no meetings, just like we didn't get meetings when we were in China back in 2019 and we were in the doghouse. And they have successfully set this trap of the prize that you want now is a visit to Beijing. And that degrades the US. The US is its equal. And an audience by Xi Jinping is not the goal. That's what China should be doing to engage with the US, just standard. The goal, now maybe if you said, oh, the goal is a piece of uh, signing an MOU, cooperation, something like that, that might be fair. But this is just talks. And I think that China has made the US see it as a goal. It's about the process, certainly, but it's about what that process shows. Now, I think if President Biden were traveling to Beijing, that in some ways would be read as elevating. That is a win for China in and of itself. And that is uh, putting the relationship on a certain status. Mm -hmm. Whether the US is looking, as you say, at getting the meeting as a win or not, 
the meeting itself is not a huge win for China either. In the sense that it's not like they're going to be able to say, oh look, the US Secretary of State has come here, that proves blank blank blank. Because it's not clear that it does. Uh, you know, he's in, I think, Saudi Arabia right now, and it's barely, it's not even making the front page uh, of Saudi Arabian newspapers, because it's simply just not that, not that exciting. The Secretary of State travels places and meets with people. It's what he is supposed to do. And so the fact that this was a visit that was kind of, it feels like leaked or initiated at the U.S., at a, on a U.S. timeline, I think kind of negates that idea. Yeah, so I think I think it's a fair point. Like in and of itself, it's not <laughs> hugely people 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 in the provinces or in Kansas don't really give <laughs> a damn either way whether Blinken goes to Beijing or not. But I was listening to um, Bill Bishop's podcast this morning. Bill Bishop, for those folks who who are unaware, is a kind of a, uh, an old China hand. He lived in Beijing for a long time. He's now the writer of a, of a very influential China US China focused newsletter um, called Sinicism, and it's it's a great newsletter if you're interested in China. You know, pretty it's down in the weeds, but it's it's a great resource. Anyway, I was listening to his podcast this morning, so I want to give him credit because I'm gonna sort of parrot what he says but he said there's two there's two interesting elements about when you turn the talks into the goal that then that china was able to force the us to give up something just to get the talks and he points to two things one the anniversary of tiananmen square was uh on sunday sunday just gone and the us is in the tradition of releasing you know it's been 30 what 34 35 years since then now they release a statement every Every anniversary, you know, human rights, condemning what happened, all that kind of stuff. It's always a sticks in the craw of the Chinese government because it's, you know, it doesn't exist as far as they're concerned. There's that famous Simpsons line where there's that plaque on Tiananmen Square and it says on June 4, 1989, at this point, nothing happened. <laughs> and that's and that's truly how the Chinese government treats it. Um, so this year, the Sunday... They released a statement, but it was significantly pared back. It was a lot less, lot less strident than it has been in recent years. And and Bill Bishop speculates, and I would also speculate, given on given our experience and understanding how these negotiations work, mm. that that was that was part of the deal. If you want Blinken to come to China and get a reception, that's part of the deal. And the second thing was that in you know as you know again setting up high level talks often preceded by medium level talks, like senior official talks will go and set the parameters and, and, you know, all that kind of stuff because they attract even less attention. And there is reports now of a, a secretary, uh, sorry, a, a Department of State official. Um, I think his name is, don't quote me on this, but I think his name is Crittenbrink. He's the, he's the character basically at a sort of senior level within the bureaucracy who's responsible for the relationship. He visited China on Sunday, on June the 4th, on, t on the day of Tiananmen Square, which is a huge signal to Chinese uh, to the Chinese government and I think to the region that the US is visiting on that day they could have they, they basically forced the Americans to visit on a day that is super super important to the, the Americans to kind of hold up as this idea of like what shouldn't happen and what the problem with China is and yet you've got American officials shaking hands with Chinese officials on that day in that city and I think it's I think I do think that stuff matters I do think optics like that matters if we go back to the, the live conversation it's that idea that well all this kind of stuff that you used to say 20, 30 years ago, the human rights, the inalienability of all this kind of stuff, eh, well, it's kind of for sale if you want something. And then at the end of it, to my point, the goal is talks with Blinken, you know, maybe with Xi Jinping. They, they, they've said possibly. I think that's probably unlikely. 
that's the that's what that's what America gets. They get to talk to China. Yeah, I think this could be a, this could be a case, as you say, of a quid pro quo. I think one thing we we don't know is whether any concessions beyond the talks were extracted from the Chinese, because if they were, it would certainly not be something the State Department, of course, ever let get out, because that's how you ensure they get walked back. So we, it, it is worth flagging that. Mm-hmm. I think it's also worth saying that. If you describe the U.S. willingness to do things like this to secure talks, is that necessarily a sign of weakness? You know, the U.S.-China relationship is so tense and the potential downside risks of, you know, you have warships that are coming within 150 yards of each other. You have planes buzzing each other in the air. If the U.S. is willing to change some some optics even in ways that it finds uncomfortable in order to make sure that there is a communication channel open i'm not a hundred percent sure that is a sign of weakness you know you talked about oh the talks are the goal is the language of a u.s condemnation of tiananmen square in 2023 truly a substantive point is anyone un- is anyone under the impression that the well, U.S. believes that Tiananmen Square is less of a problem this week than they did a month ago, or that they will a month hence? Does anyone seriously believe? Was anyone sort of going? Is anyone reading those two parallel statements in the real world and going, ah, it's cool to crush protesters with tanks now? I think as as much as as much as the Chinese are selling something purely, as you say, a pure conversation. Couldn't you argue that what the what the US paid for it with was just as optical? Yeah, it's a fair point. And I think, again, it's it's a little bit like the real politique versus like, you know, the world as it is versus the world as it should be kind of argument, um, which I'm always susceptible into the falling into the, the, the idealistic camp here. But I think it does matter. And I think, so take, for example, with China, we grew up, in the 90s and the 2000s, and all anyone would talk about with the China with, about China then was Tibet and the human rights abuses in Tibet in suppressing that culture, uh, in essentially making people not be able to visit, um, you know, ex- exiling the Dalai Lama. You don't never talk about Tibet anymore, ever, 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 ever. Those are forgotten people. They're still they're still living under a Chinese regime they don't want to be. And then Hong Kong, and now Hong Kong's falling off the boil. And Xinjiang, that was a big deal a couple of years ago. Nah, no one really thinks about that now. We've gone back to buying cotton that's harvested by Muslim slaves, essentially. This is how the slow boil of China and other authoritarian regimes, but China is particularly adept at it, they realized that you just have to eke away at these individual things that in isolation are exactly what you just said. No, I would not say that a slightly shorter statement on human rights on the anniversary of Tiananmen Square matters in itself. But it is part of a vast network of chipping away at this world order that says there is a, there is a morality, a legality, uh, a sense of right and wrong in the way you're supposed to conduct yourselves in international relations. China doesn't like that because it's an authoritarian regime. And I don't mean that to be like a, it's bad and evil. I just mean it has a different conception of what a society is, that the, the value that there is no such thing really as a minority right being more important than a majority right. The idea that we have individual property rights and no matter how much the group of the country wants to overrule them, our system says you can't. China's isn't like that. They have a, con- a different conception of society and they are chipping away at that at the American 
led, Western led world order of of how you should treat people. Now, you know, it's 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 a whole different debate to argue about all of that stuff. But but I would push back on the idea that these things in individuality don't matter. I think you have to be taken as a whole. And then zoom back out again and go, okay, maybe, maybe, maybe you genuinely do say that, like, okay, we're not going to bang the drum on Tiananmen Square anymore because it's not as relevant. We make different points elsewhere. We we're not we're not we're not saying it's a good thing. We're not allowing it. We're just we're choosing to pick our battles. Okay, but then what are you getting in return? Again, we don't know what China gave up, but I would argue, I'd be shocked if they gave up much. They're giving up the the the, the audience with their own officials that that shouldn't be a negotiation and Ch and China did this to Australia and as I, as I as I alluded to when I was in in China they did this they made us beg for a meeting and that that is not how foreign like healthy relationships work that's not how relationships based on mutual trust all the stuff that China talks about being like oh you know you must you must come to the table with a full heart well okay but I got to the table by having to jump through hoops that doesn't create and foster a relationship that is productive. And I think by going, Blinken is kind of saying, well, well we have to play the hand we're dealt. And, and Does it signal weakness if indeed the US had to buy this meeting through concessions? I think that to an extent does signal weakness. I think I'm, I can concede that point. But I think there's a broader issue at stake here, which is fundamentally is are the optics of a Blinken meeting either with his counterpart or with G himself, does that signal US weakness? Like, should he be going at mm. all? If the if the Chinese had had said, yeah, sure, come along, no preconditions, would that have signaled US weakness if they hadn't had to buy it? And I think that's that's an issue worth considering. And then just very briefly on your point about Tibet. Yeah, you know, everybody did have free Tibet stickers throughout the 90s and the 2000s. And, I mean, yeah, we don't talk about it anymore, but what did we change? Did, did we successfully free Tibet? Did we improve the lives of the Tibetan people? If, if anything, kind of, it was, a, it was a consistent demonstration of our collective impotence and our unwillingness to put our money where our mouths are to put pain on the table to take on sacrifices in order to pursue these moral stances Correct. we had. And, you know, year after year, having college students waving free Tibet flags while we continue to engage with a China that was hugely economically lucrative, that was hugely important, I think, if anything, just mm -hmm. made us look, mm -hmm. I know, hypocritical, weak, uh, uh, lacking in conviction, and contributed to this idea that clearly the Saudis have, and the Chinese have, that the West doesn't have moral stances, it has a moral morality price list. And that Western flexibility is for sale if they want it. Yeah, I think that's entirely correct. And I think that's exactly why I think this Blinken visit does signal weakness, um, because it is this idea of like, oh, well, you, you want to talk to us, but you want to talk without preconditions. Well, let's just see how many preconditions you're willing to take. How badly do you want this meeting? It's the idea of 
everything in this relationship has a price rather than China should want good relationships with America. And, you know, I understand America has not been particularly deft in a lot of things. Um, you know, th there's an argument that you, you started this conversation by saying Blinken was was supposed to be going after the balloon um, event and cancelled it because of the balloon event. And I remember us talking about it and I, I was on the fence about whether he should go because, you know, on one on one, on one hand, you know, he's a diplomat. Diplomats talk. That's what you do. China just did something really dumb. But, you know, America is far from blameless when it comes to spying on people. So you go, you talk. Mm -hmm. And arguably, if he'd gone then, then maybe uh, this wouldn't, we wouldn't be having this conversation, right? Um, and in a way, China is putting a cost to these talks because they felt so aggrieved at the way, at the fact that Blinken embarrassed them by not going, in which... He didn't go because the Chinese offended the Americans by playing it. And this is how this circular stuff goes. And by going, you're kind of accepting that circular like escalation or de-escalation or spiral or whatever metaphor you want to use of now everything now everything's a, has to be organized, like, bargained away. Like even a meeting between officials in which they should be meeting without cost to make sure everything goes okay, that's now got a cost. And... The point that I was going to make before is the U.S. doesn't need to do this. APEC is in the U.S. in September or October or later this year. Um, Xi Jinping is, is it, I, I haven't heard anything to the contrary. He's supposed to go to the U.S. China needs to engage with that. If China isn't at APEC because they choose not to go, that's a huge sign to the region that China isn't willing to engage in multilateral forums in good faith. America's going to extend an, an invitation and maybe they don't give Xi Jinping a state visit because things are bad. But that's Xi Jinping's ego and his idea that like, oh, China must be super respected around the world. And if he doesn't go to APEC, APEC, that hurts China. So like China needs to engage with the US to get stuff back on a feasibly okay footing before that meeting later this year. And Blinken going now Again, we don't know a lot about the cost that they've paid, and I'm speculating based on someone, a podcast that I heard this morning from someone I trust. So, I, you know, I, I think it's real. But if those costs are real, Blinken didn't need to pay him, and he doesn't need to go to China now because China's going to have to come to the US or China's going to have to engage with talks sooner or later. So he didn't need to pay the prices, I guess what I'd be saying. Yeah, I guess for me, it comes down to what is the fundamental nature of the relationship at present? The U.S. conducts talks with most with most countries around the world. Have we now reached a stage where U.S. direct engagement with China is in and of itself problematic or a big deal? Or no, China is the second or third largest, depending on how you count the EU economy in the world. It's hugely significant to the region. Ordinarily, you would say, well, yeah, of course. A primary role of the Secretary of State is to be the one person who definitely should be speaking directly to the geostrategic rival of the US for the 21st century. That is clearly his job. And listen, I will be the first one to say the Chinese have been absolutely the best in the world at making their sensitivities everyone else's problem. Exactly. 80% of international diplomacy, for those who are looking at getting into it, 80% of international diplomacy, your biggest headaches are like, am I accidentally going to say something that offends one of the Chinese sensitivities that are like hugely specific and technical, but that they will go absolutely ballistic over? 
they have had a wildly and, successful and strategy of going ballistic at the slightest hint that one of their sensitivities is being encroached on. And that has basically, like, reversed Pavlov's dogs, has trained international diplomats to tippy-toe and treat sensitivities. Yeah. I will, I will readily, readily accept that. But in a lot of ways, that boat has sailed. We have all, we talked about this during Pelosi's visit to, when we discussed Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, that we have all collectively now bought into the idea that China has these sensitivities that you can't ever come near lest you invoke the end times, that it's almost like they've won that fight in a lot of ways. And if the second, unless we've made the decision that we are going to stop talking to them at all, I don't think it necessarily displays weakness. I just think it displays kind of pragmatism to be just like, well, yeah, yeah. When we went over there, and the price to pay is that we didn't we didn't complain about Tiananmen Square quite as hard as we normally do. That's that's a cost of doing business with with China. Kind of, we should have fixed that fifteen years ago, but it's too late now. Yeah, I think that's a very fair take, and I think pragmatism is, in many ways, a re- a recognition of weakness uh i think the idea that um you say well that's just the world we live in and we have to do it even though we don't like it signals that america is is weak um vis-a-vis china or vis-a-vis where it should be i think we are you and i are also analyzing this potentially subconsciously from an australian perspective in Mm. which we are like well we kind of have to take what china says because you know we are not an equal partner in that relationship um geopolitically economically any any way you dice it we are a junior junior uh, member of that relationship, the U.S. isn't like that. China, China needs to deal with the U.S. if not more than sure as hell equally as much as the U.S. needs to deal with China. I mentioned the APEC thing, so there's something on the horizon mm. that China really needs from the U.S. And I think that by being pragmatic, and I and I accept that it is pragmatic. I accept that it is just be like, okay, shut up. We'll give you what you want. It doesn't cost us anything big politically in the short term. But that is implicitly a recognition of weakness. And right now, I mean, again, my opinion only, but my sense is that when you deal with China, you if you project weakness, if you show weakness, it's not a sign of like, okay, thank you for meeting our demands. Let's have a great conversation. It's, haha, we won. Now let's twist the knife. Um, and, and I think actually, I mean, again, we're running out of time here, so I don't want to open up a whole new can of worms. But going to China on this issue... Maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit for effect, but it kind of undercuts your whole approach to China and Taiwan and like not confrontation, but, you know, what they're what they're talking about, like uh, de-risking and and kind of funding Japan and like putting up these barriers against China. It's a little bit undermined by the strategy of engaging with them on their terms pragmatically, because if you're going to be pragmatic, but you've got to be pragmatic the whole way through your system, you've got to say, yeah, we're not going to defend Taiwan. We're not going to go to war over Taiwan because our interests aren't there. We're going to like try and influence you to do it peacefully. And we're going to try and work, you know, create good results, but you can't be a wall of steel and defend democracy and all this authoritarian versus democracy framing that Biden, to be clear, that I think is nonsense that Biden is is coming up with. And then also say, but we'll engage with you if you if you like if you're a bit hard to deal with because we really want to have a chat. Like it, it just it doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem in, internally coherent to me. Yeah, I would push back pretty pretty strongly on that. At the height of the Cold War, the U.S. and the Soviet Union kept lines of communication 
open, whether those were direct military, I mean, quite literally, the, the red phones connecting the, the presidents and, and at other levels as well. I don't think it's necessarily a sign of weakness to say, hey, we are global juggernauts who disagree on a whole bunch of things. We have a whole bunch of friction points. We've got literally military vessels within sight of one another. We need to be able to keep talking to each other and we need to establish those people-to-people connections at a high level to avoid getting into a situation beyond our appetite for confrontation by accident through miscommunication or through just a lack of ways to engage directly. I think that is not necessarily a a sign of weakness at all. In the same way that I think the US was in a engaging in weakness when it talked directly to Khrushchev and and the the Russian uh, the Soviet premiers. Yeah, I think it's interesting. So let's let's just tease that out really quickly. So firstly, during the Cold War, the US and and the Soviet Union didn't always talk, right? They had huge periods where they didn't talk. And the setting up of the red phone, as you mentioned, was in direct response to a couple of close shaves because they spent, I think, the better part of the 50s not talking, right? Um, so again, I'm not saying that this is the perfect result. I'm not saying that in a perfect world, America and China wouldn't talk. Of course, I agree with all of that stuff. But let me make my point by asking you a question. Is there something that China could do? Is there a cost or a price that they put on these kinds of, what I see as should just be basic transactional meetings between superpowers that should be kind of like not even talked about. They should be par for the course. Is there a cost that or a price that China would charge for those meetings that you would come to my side and say, okay, that's not a price we should pay because that shows too much weakness? Yeah, I think absolutely. No question at all. I think on, on the flip side, my question to you would be, if there hadn't been preconditions, do you think a Secretary of State visit to China is a sign of weakness just prima facie. Oh, no, no, absolutely not. So, like, again, no. Blinken, that's what I mean. That's what I've been saying this whole time. Blinken and uh, Li Chang or whoever he wants to meet over there, uh, Wang, uh, the new foreign minister, they should be meeting always. Okay. <laughs> always. Like, I like talking is, like, the absolute gold standard. That's what diplomats are supposed to do. So, of course, it's not weakness to talk. It's weakness to talk when the other side makes the talks your foreign policy goal. Because the foreign policy goal of both sides should be able to have a relationship that avoids conflict, that manages its differences, finds areas of cooperation, all that stuff that we blag on about in talking points. That's the goal. And the, and the process is the talks. So the talks are absolutely crucial. But when you start to go down to the second derivative and go like, actually, we're going to try and impose costs on the talks so that you th- you mistake the talks for the goal, that's where it sh- starts to show weakness. If you don't say, hey, 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 absolutely not. We... And, and in a way, Blinken not going after the balloon kind of started that, right? He said, actually, there are things that, there are times that you sh- we won't talk to you because you've done something so wrong. But the, 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 the talk should almost just happen regardless of the, conver- like of the, of the relationship's, uh, let's say, health. Um, so no, I don't think it's weakness, but I think there, if you, if you sort of acknowledge that there are costs that you wouldn't be willing to pay, then the conversation really is about the costs that we don't know that China's imposed, but you know, we have a sense. And I guess maybe that's a, that's a, that's a question for our listeners and everyone who is, is in this space to kind of come up with their own line in the sand and maybe a shorter statement on Tiananmen Square and, you know, the, the indignity of visiting and shaking hands on that day. Um, and you know, all this other stuff, uh, 
and I should say that China is also repurposing that propaganda about the Navy boot diver and the Nord Stream <laughs> thing. I don't know if you saw that, but like, this is a, this is a country that like actively promotes conspiracy theories and and that kind of stuff. Maybe the cost of going and and having a, a conversation and at that cost is something you're worth willing to you, you are willing to pay. I'm not sure where I come down on that, but I definitely think it signals weakness that they are paying that cost. I think one thing I would uh, throw in just to end is the one downside at discussing a forward-looking event, something that hasn't happened yet, is that a big part of this is what do you do on that visit? When we discussed, when we talked about Macron and van der Leyen's visit to China, that Macron let the Chinese absolutely humiliate the eu the story coming out of that visit was macron yes. flirting with like leaving nato or something his weird comments about strategic autonomy weird comments about ukraine and the story that was i think we were pretty unequivocal and the world press was pretty unequivocal a sign of weakness he allowed the chinese to choreograph naivete to choreograph the entire thing and if Blinken and the U.S. are smart about how they do this, you know, there is nothing that would stop Blinken from mentioning Tiananmen Square from the podium at a press conference. Yes. If he really wanted to throw that elbow. So one aspect of it is... It's a good point. Is it a sign of weakness if you pay too much, the way John says? And then secondly, how does the visit... Who is elevated by the visit and who is diminished by it? is I think something we don't know yet. Yes, and and to your point, yeah, you know, that might be the decision-making in the state, right? Like, Blinken might be like, oh, I really don't want to do this, but let's hold our nose, and when we go there, mm. we'll actually bring this stuff up in a meeting, and we'll make a statement that is interpreted by the world press as us being, like, pretty punchy, um, and that and that prize is actually worth the cost of what you're paying, so, yeah. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Well, that seems like a good place to, to leave it. We've sort of arrived at a broad consensus, which is unusual. It's an interesting conversation. Normally, we just loathe each other by the end of these. <laughs> that's, to be clear, that's not true, listeners. Uh, it's, yeah, I mean, it's certainly not bila- bilateral. <laughs> no, thank you so, so much to, to everyone listening. Uh, this has been a really fun debate for us, and I hope you've enjoyed it too. As always, mm. we'd hugely appreciate any ideas you may have for topics you'd like to see opened up, unpackaged in this way by two crusty old former diplomats. As always, we'd love to recommend that you subscribe to International Intrigue, a newsletter with over 50,000 readers and growing at exponential rates. That is all of the foreign policy you need in about seven minutes in your inbox. The links are down below mm-hmm. this podcast in the description, so please do subscribe and subscribe to the podcast as well. Thanks so much. Thanks, everyone. Great to chat. Thank you.